Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. We're talking about history today. The history of how history was used in European imperial projects, particularly the British Empire. I'm talking to Professor Priya Satya, a professor of history at Stanford University. She's a prize-winning historian, prize-winning author, and you're going to see why, because she's a bit of a legend. Uh, she's written an astonishing book called Time's Monster. And as I was reading it, I was operating at the very extremity of my mental capacity. For many of you, this will be right in the middle of the ballpark. But for me, I was on the very edge. I was clinging to the edge of it. If you are interested in the issues raised in this podcast. For example, the British Empire's treatment of opposition in Kenya, India, and elsewhere. We've got lots of programs. Lots of programs on History Hit TV. We have Operation Legacy, for example, on History Hit TV, of how the, the British sought to cover up some of their colonial-era atrocities in Kenya. We've got all sorts of other shows available on History Hit TV. This week is Trafalgar Week. So all week we're looking at that hugely important battle in the genesis of the British Empire, a battle that confirmed Britain's dominance at sea over the French and Spanish. And it would be the last full-scale fleet battle the British fought against an opposing kind of global hegemonic power until the First World War. A hugely important battle. To mark that battle, we're making History Hit TV available at a super, super cheap rate. If you use the code Trafalgar, Trafalgar, it gets you a month for free, and then your first three months is one pound, euro, or dollar. So we've got a whole season of Trafalgar and Nelson-related content up there, and lots more going up besides. In the meantime, everybody, enjoy Priya Satya. Priya, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This book blew my mind. Can I ask you, I know you say it is not a history of history, but I found your discussion of the journey we've all been on since Thucydides and Herodotus on this kind of history journey. Can you tell me a little bit how you see the idea of history developing just briefly in the last 3,000 years? I'm sorry for that big question, but it's so good. I can't let you go without it. And your first chapter was so good. No, I mean, so we've always been telling stories about our past, right? Every civilization does it and every civilization has always done it. But the way we do it, the purpose of doing it shifts over time. So if you look at Herodotus, it's a history and he's considered the father of history, but there's fable mixed in there. Sometimes God intervenes directly in the world. Thucydides is different. Well, he's sort of taken as the father of modern history, I guess you could say in the sense that he's trying to tell a story without God intervening in the world, where human events just build on each other. 
but those two works didn't necessarily shape how history was written, you know, since then, right? Those works are lost, they're rediscovered, they're translated, they have different influences in different parts of the world. But what happens is in the Enlightenment, these philosophers in Europe are trying to think of a way to understand history where it has meaning and purpose. Because if history, if human events don't have meaning and purpose, then you're just stuck looking at the horrible human condition, right? And our, the horrible things that humans always do. And, and you have to just hope that in the afterlife, there will be some meaning. So they're trying to think, okay, there, we behave horribly. We are human, but perhaps we can imagine this in earthly time having some kind of meaning or purpose, right? And that's the way we can understand how a good God allows evil to exist in the world, why there is even evil, right? And so what they decide is that, okay, God does not intervene directly in the world, but he exercises a kind of providential care so that we know that we shouldn't panic. Uh, we shouldn't even object when we see something that seems evil occurring because it may be that in the long run, it has a very productive effect. And so this, this new way of thinking about history in the 18th century, the argument I make in the book is that it changes sort of everyday ethical thought for first people in Europe who are coming up with these ideas, but then it's sort of exported all over the world. Even more than that, you suggest that because of their standpoint, their context, this providential guiding hand from God seemed to be delivering the world into the hands of said Europeans and, and thinkers. These thinkers were becoming politicians in their own right in, in many cases, or certainly in, influencing politicians. And so history is a way of justifying the present arrangements. Yeah, so, so in, in the 18th century, Britain, for instance, is almost always at war. And some of these thinkers are looking at this and saying, you know, war doesn't seem to be a very good thing. A lot of people die. Uh, it's destructive. But maybe it's a necessary evil, right? Maybe in the end, this is going to turn, do something for the better, not, you know, for Britain. But later on, then they start adding on this idea that for the world as well, right? And in fact, Britain wins all but one of those wars and British power expands steadily. And then these people at the turn of the 19th century are looking back and thinking, yeah, we were right. This has worked out well for the nation and this is a providential project, the expansion of British power. And from that point, all kinds of decisions relating to the spread of British power uh, even when it meant destruction on the ground or even the destruction of entire peoples at times, right? All of that can be justified by the idea that we're fulfilling a historic destiny, that in the end, it will be, it will be vindicated in time. We can't judge it right now. We have to suppress our ordinary kind of moral compunctions about what we're doing. We confess them in our diaries. We write letters to our mothers in which we express this discomfort. But we do it nonetheless because it's history is asking us to do it. It's very fatalistic, actually. Macaulay, Hume, this idea of Whiggish history, which we still sometimes talk about in the UK, we... And indeed, with contemporary thinkers, I don't know whether it's Stephen Pinker or Fukuyama, the big debates, like if everything was just slowly getting the ultimate dialectic, you know, if everything slowly was just getting better, is that the seeds of, of that modern impulse that we see there? Yeah, the idea that history must be about progress. This is the birth of that idea. 
And even Marxists have it in their own version, right? So there's liberalism and Marxism, the Whig interpretation and the Marxist interpretation. And we know that they're on opposite sides in the Cold War. But the fundamental belief, you know, that history is going to be a story of progress is common to both. And what happens is in especially as you get into the 20th century, there are historians like Herbert Butterfield is the British historian who actually, I think, dubs it the Whig interpretation of history. And he says, actually, this is totally wrong. I mean, the job of historians is not to look back and judge things in the past. And we sh and history's the purpose of human life is not something that's going to come to fruition far, far in the future. It's about the here and now. So there are people who are criticizing this also, even in the 18th century and all the way through the modern period. But as you mentioned, with you know, people like Fukuyama, I mean, these are these remain really powerfully influential ideas in our kind of popular conceptions of history, even if within the academy, I think there's there are more critical views. OK, so let's get back to empire. Talk to me more about these people that you talk about, whether it's Quaker gunsmiths or people on the crumbling frontiers of empire. That link between their understanding of history and their actions and their ability to justify things that they knew to be unethical at the time. That is a central argument of the book I find so fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the whole imperial project is so... Um, so many people just feel guilty all the time. It's kind of... And so much is done in the name of atonement for earlier imperial sins, right? So um, it's this constant effort to catch up with conscience, right? So you have someone like Henry Maine. I'll give you like an example. He's a jurist and a historian who goes to India right after this massive Indian rebellion in 1857. And it takes a year for the British to to crush it, and they crush it very, very violently and brutally, blowing thousands of people off cannons. I mean, there's some really horrendous stories. And then um, Henry Maine goes there determined to fix things. Obviously, something has gone wrong. But when he gets there, he decides that, look, it's too late. We've already destroyed too much. We can't restore Indian civilization and culture to and, and administrative arrangements to what they were. So we kind of have to live with our mistakes. And we have to recognize that British power, by its very nature, is destructive in a really, really constructive way. I mean, he's, he, I, I, I don't have the quote at my fingertips, but he, he basically spells that out as, you know, as much as I would have liked to make things right, I can't. And in service to of history, we have to all just be phlegmatic, you know, that sorry, the British kind of thing about the stiff upper lip, you know, and uh, and put up with this feeling kind of stoically and, and do what history requires. This kind of change is going to come to India. We brought it maybe too quickly our, ourselves, um, but India was going to change anyway. And so now we have a responsibility to finish the job as destructive as it might feel and as much as it makes our consciences weary. And so it's amazing how often it is someone like a historian who is in that position of administrative power making those calls. So I think history was really practically helpful in enabling empires, whether it's Macaulay, you mentioned, or Maine, or later, um, you know, even Winston Churchill. Or Seeley, you mentioned his great quote about the, the sort of school of statesmanship. Um, so, so I'm understanding now, as I'm reading your book, that Time's Monster, which is the title of your book, it is predictably clever because the Time's Monster doesn't refer to the monstrous form of the British Empire, but 
the Times monster means that the British Empire was created by an awareness of the passing of what they thought was history. I'm not calling the Empire the monster or the British a monster. I'm, I'm sad to think, I hope no one takes that, that meaning. It's history. History is Times monster. It's meant playfully and it's like this idea of history that had such good intentions behind it that uh, to make our peace with earthly life so we're not always, you know, looking to the afterlife for meaning. Um, that's a pretty nice thought, but by thinking that way, we created this monster that uh, licensed us to behave in ways that we knew we weren't com- that we knew were not right by kind of ordinary ethics. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States, from first flight to first ladies. From stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember when you use a messaging app, They shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high-quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes, and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. And gives us these amazing ideas that we still are still in modern parlance state, like to be on the right side of history. And as Obama says, like bending the arc of history does not always run whatever. I mean, lovely rhetoric, but kind of in crazy, really. Anyone can say, like, you know, here, um, Trump supporters say they're on the right side of history, and and critics of Trump say they are on the right side of history. And the point is, like, no one ever thinks they're on the wrong side of history, right? So you can't really sit around waiting for history to judge. And I think it's more important to listen to what historians today are saying about to explain how we got here and then use your ordinary, more, you know, transcendent, non-time-based um, ethical idioms to figure out what's, what's the right thing to do. Like, pay attention to the present and, and not wait for that future judgment. You point out that the historians, I mean, obviously, we've, we're recording this in October of 2020. Uh, on, in fact, I think on Columbus Day or Columbus Day was yesterday. 
And the Trump White House released an extraordinary statement that's um, kind of in many ways quite fascist, really, in its conception of Columbus Day and history and re revising history. And you point out in your book, and I was reading it yesterday, that actually, and I was very struck by that contrast, because you point out that until about 1945, historians were very much on the side of the establishment. And historians in the, in the US and UK, for example, were people that bolstered a narrative of imperialism and progress and white man's burden, so to speak, use an expression from the time. And now the opposite seems to be the case. Now the Academy are regarded as enemies by people like Trump, and I think here in the UK by some on the populist right as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that's some, I mean, there's a history to that too. There was a kind of reckoning or a kind of realization, especially after World War II, within the Academy that... <laughs> history obviously doesn't look like it's about progress, you know, coming out of the Holocaust and the dropping of the atomic bombs on Japan. And in that moment, a lot of people were understandably skeptical that history was really about progress. And they revised their understanding of, you know, what we're doing when we're doing history. Why, why we write history? Are we trying to justify moral wrongs in the past? Are we trying to predict the future? Or are we actually just trying to recover um, what's lost? Um, and understand ways of being that we can access through historical sources that belong to the past and, and sort of commune with them and recognize our own humanity in that and, and the humanity of people in the past. Like that's a kind of basic human need and function, right? So historians in the academy also, I mean, they, there was a kind of realization even before World War II among some British historians also that, you know, history has been really complicit in enabling empire and they start rewriting the empire um, in way, rewriting the history of colonialism um, in more critical ways. And so, uh, and there's just more and more awareness of the power of governments and how they can control narratives um, and how that ha they have been doing that by co-opting history uh, all along. And so you see historians within the academy increasingly taking the position of critic of government or truth teller against the government, always, you know, sh informing the public about where they're being lied to by states that are democratic in name, but don't always want democratic control of what they're doing, right? They have their own agendas. And so these ideas become popular, uh, especially among the left and, and you know, increasingly in, in the academy. But the, in, in popular culture, I think the idea that history is progress, um, it's about great men and great deeds, still remains really, really um, influential. It is difficult, that idea of progress, because particularly if I was an Enlightenment historian or writer and a thinker, and I'd seen the extraordinary transformation that had gone on in and around me with unlocking the elemental forces of nature, the Industrial Revolution, you could be forgiven for thinking that we were progressing from one place to another. It just turns out that as the 20th century showed, it wasn't necessarily the utopian sort of peaceful uplands that, that we once thought. Yeah, I think um, in the Industrial Revolution, you know, that's it's the same time it lines up with the Enlightenment too. It lines up with criticism of the Enlightenment, the Romantic movement, for instance. Um, and people are looking at radical change happening and some people are saying it looks bad. Some things are being changed very dramatically, but it's going to work out for the best in the end. And other people are saying, no, 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 
nothing can justify this utter destruction of people's lives and livelihoods, right? So these two kind of modes of thinking about history sort of emerge at the same time. And you see critiques as well in, in from the perspective of colonial subjects as well, which is another thing that's covered in the book. But I think besides World War II and the way that ended, I think right now today, the uh, climate change, which you can trace back to the Industrial Revolution, is really what's help, um, kind of forcing people to again really question, okay, maybe now time has proved that that expectation that emerged in the time of the Industrial Revolution, that this is all going to lead to a really good place. Maybe that was wrong because we've gotten to a really scary place. Climate looms, I think, rightly very large in this book because it is a gigantically inconvenient fact for those who still talk about, you know, idea of, of progress and marching towards the upland, sunlit uplands. Do you feel, though, when historians took a more critical position, you mentioned in your book a few times that also that meant that the voices of historians have been sidelined, ignored by by politicians, that historians haven't had as much say as you would... Well, you're biased because you're a historian, but haven't had as much say as you and I and the people listening to this podcast would like. So I think people who are nostalgic for a time when historians were cozy with power like to make the claim that uh, historians on the left, historians in the academy have abdicated responsibility and are not informing public debate the way they once did and the way they should. And I think that is a false claim. I think historians' work can be specialized just like economists' work can be specialized. But just as economists continue to contribute to public debate, historians do too. It's just that we're often taking a more critical position of what the state is doing. So some of the examples I give in the book is that, you know, we have the Iraq War in 2003 in which thousands of American historians wrote a petition the, uh, through the American Historical Association saying, let's not do this. This is not a good idea. You know, there's no abdication of responsibility. It's just that the government and U.S. government didn't like that opinion and didn't listen to that opinion. And the same thing with, you know, things like, uh, you know, gun control, anything that, you know, immigration, whatever raises a kind of historical question. You'll always find historians speaking about it. The question is whether they're heated or not. What's the job of historian today? What's your job? To teach, to explain how we got here, to participate in conversations about the past, wherever they happen, uh, in public debate, in conversations about how to address the past um, going forward. So memorialization, reparations, restitution, apologies, that whole set of conversations, but also to continue what we're doing when we talk about questions of gun control, immigration, so all that stuff. I mean, continue doing that work that we are already doing. But I don't think that we should be waiting for historians to, to, in the future to figure out what we're doing now. I think people should read more history. And I think, you know, historians are not abdicating any responsibility, but there are areas where we could, I hate to use this phrase, but sort of lean in more, you know, and, and recognize that there are historians who are telling us what the past was like, but popular culture is so full of so many other forms of storytelling about the past, whether it's, you know, Netflix shows or pageants and commemorative events, everyone's own personal memories or past down traditions. I mean, there's like this just vast pool of culture that's 
grounded in stories about the past. And I really do think these new conversations we're having about memorializations and, and reparations are just one way where we're forcing a reckoning with the past in a big kind of popular culture way. I, I really think that's a productive direction. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And your book in the UK is called Time's Monster, History, Consciousness of Britain's Empire. Remind us what it's called in the US. Time's Monster, How History Makes History. Oh, it's such an interesting book. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure. hope you enjoyed the podcast just before you go bit of a favor to ask i totally understand if you don't want to become a subscriber or pay me any cash money makes sense but if you could just do me a favor it's for free go to itunes or wherever you get your podcast if you give it a five star rating and give it an absolutely glowing review purge yourself give it a glowing review i'd really appreciate that it's tough world out there law of the jungle out there and i need all the fire support i can get so that will boost it up the charts it's so tiresome but if you could do it i'd be very very grateful thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.